Hello and thanks for streaming this episode from ACF Church. Our hope is that this word would encourage you to walk closer with God and with your local church. We hope you consider partnering in the work God's doing here by joining a life group, serving, and giving. If you'd like to give financially to the mission of ACF Church, you can do so safely on our website at acfak.org or by texting the amount to 907-341-4213. Now prepare your hearts to hear God's word. Perfect. Oh, bang on my chest if you think I'm perfect. Go ahead, bang on it. Beautiful. What a nickel. It's empty. The tinsmith forgot to give me a heart. No heart? No heart. All hollow. When a man's an empty kettle, he should be on his metal, and yet I'm torn apart. Just because I'm presuming that I could be kind of human if I only had a heart. I'd be tender, I'd be gentle, and awful sentimental regarding love and art. I'd be friends with the sparrows, and the boy who shoots the arrows if I only had a heart. Good morning, 11 a.m. How are you guys doing? You made it to church today. You braved the roads. Anybody fall in your driveway on the way to your car today? You guys doing okay? Uh, thanks for being with us and making it here this morning. We also want to welcome everybody who's with us online. Can we thank them for being with us as well? We love you. We're glad that you're joining us as well from a distance. And so we are in a series today. Pastor Stewart kicked off our new series, Tin Man. And Tin Man is a conversation about what it means to have a heart. The, 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 really to- the topic of this series is compassion. How can we be a church that's defined as compassionate to our community? And so uh, before we really get to how we can pour that out into the world, we're really spending a few weeks talking about how we can first receive compassion. And, and, and as I, I think Pastor Stewart said, we can never really give what we haven't first received. And so we want to be the kind of people who have first received compassion from Jesus so that we can give the compassion of Jesus to the world. And, and so that's really what the series is about. Also, the last week of this series, here in two weeks, let me just tell you, don't miss church. Um, don't miss church in two weeks. We together are stepping out in compassion. And so we are partnering with an organization called Compassion International. And I'll tell you all the story of how we kind of came to the part of the world that we're going to begin uh, doing some work in. Um, that last week, I'll talk a lot about that. But, but here's the basics of it. We're going to be sponsoring, through Compassion, uh, children in an area called Burkina Faso. It's a country called Burkina Faso. The, the city is, um, is called Bobo Dioulasso. And we'll, we'll talk all about that region, but just let me tell you, the needs are huge. Um, there's a ton of poverty. There's a deep spiritual need there. And all of that will take a step forward as we step out in generosity together. And so I want you to just start thinking and praying about this. The cost to sponsor a child is going to be $38 a month. 
And for some of you, that's sort of a drop in the bucket. It's a no-brainer. Uh, others of you, that's a massive sacrifice. That means taking out some things, uh, some things out of your budget so that you can do that. And so let me just encourage you today on the way home uh, or this evening as a family, sit down and talk about it. If you've got kids, begin discussing it uh, with your kids. You can also go online to the ACF Church page and find out more about Bobo or stop by the, uh, the, the big screens in the lobby, and uh, there's some more information on those as well. And so that's coming. Also, we're into our new kids space. Is that awesome or what? Yeah, praise God for that. Man, you parents have been so gracious in just checking your kids out uh, into the, the kids' ministry in the cold, and now we're done with the tent, and you can actually come inside for that. Uh, we are really excited for that. If you've got friends with kids, make sure you just invite them to church next week, that they can be a, a part of this new, uh, new thing that we've got going on here. So uh, we are in Luke chapter 4 today. Would you stand up in, in the honor of reading God's word? I'm going to read this scripture, pray for us, and then we'll get into the text today. It says this, verse 16, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus, thank you so much for the church. Thanks that we can be here together today. Uh, God, we recognize that we live in a world that is not really marked by compassion. Live in a world uh, where people sort of keep to themselves, take care of themselves. And even in your church, God, I don't know that when people think of the church, they think of compassion. And yet, Father, I, I feel your, your calling to our hearts to change that. So would you speak to us through your scripture today? We believe that uh, this has a word for us. And God, we're distracted. There's a lot coming. There's Thanksgiving is on its way. There's a lot going on in our jobs in our schools, but Father, could we be fully present for a few moments? Would you uh, help us to have an interaction with our Creator? God, I pray for the person here today who's far from you or just seeking the truth, God, that uh, they would have an encounter with you that is real and tangible. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. So as we talk about compassion, I just want you to start off by thinking of a season in your life where people have been compassionate to you. I, I think we all probably have a story or a moment where uh, somebody has just sort of like stepped into our story and, and chosen to help us in a situation of need. And I, I can think of many examples of that in, in my life and our family li- family's lives over the years. Uh, specifically, uh, about four years ago, I remember um, my wife had had some like chest pains. It was, it was just this weird thing that came out of nowhere. Um, and... I'm telling you, what, I, I, this was a fail. This was a husband fail for me because it, it went on for like a, a few days into like a week and she's late at night laying in bed wheezing and I don't know about you husbands in the room, but like I need my sleep, right? And so I just remember one night I'm like, can you wheeze somewhere else? So um, yeah, loving husband move, exactly. So um, don't judge me. So anyway, we, the next day was a Sunday morning. I'm up here preaching. She comes to to church, and somebody was a nurse here, and they were, like, talking to her, like, hey, let's sit you down and (laughs) kind of take your vitals. So they're taking her vitals, like, in the lobby at church, and she's like, you may have, I don't know, a 
pulmonary embolism or something. And Amanda's like, oh, that's bad. So I should get checked out. So I'm up here preaching, and unbeknownst to me, she's going to the ER and getting checked out. And, and I didn't realize until I left the church, she actually had a collapsed lung. It was just this random thing that happened to my wife out of nowhere. Um, and, and so... Uh, so she began some treatment for that, and they got the lung reinflated. And over the course of the next week or so, man, you guys just loved us so well. Um, you, you, you sent notes of encouragement. You stopped by with meals. Uh, you called us up just to say you were praying for us. You stopped by just to check in on us. And, and for me, honestly, like it was a season of compassion. It, it just meant a lot that people would step into our situations. And compassion's a difficult thing, isn't it? It's difficult because you and I have enough to worry about on our own, don't we? I mean, you have problems to to worry about. You have things to be concerned about. You have fears in your own life. I mean, you've got your own kids and your own boss and your own teachers to worry about, let alone somebody else's situation. But but we are to be people of compassion if we are the people of God. And, And if I were to define compassion, I'd define it this way. Compassion is when I make someone else's problems my priority. That's what compassion is. When I choose to make your problems my priority, that's, that's compassion. That, 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 that takes a lot of effort and a lot of work to do that because once again, I don't know about you, but I'm selfish. You're like, clearly, you are a jerk to your wife. Yes, I'm selfish, and I tend to think about myself and my own needs before others. Yet to be like Jesus is to step into someone else's world and to take their problems upon ourselves. So to have compassion, you have to do two specific things. The first thing compassion seeks to do is is to understand. The first thing you you seek to do is to understand what's going on in somebody's life. What are you doing to try to understand other people's pain? It won't always come at you. It won't always be something that's right in your face. It might be something that you actually have to step into and do some work to be able to experience other people's pain. I know every month our church does something called Urban Mission, where a group of people go down into downtown Anchorage, they hand out clothing and and food to the less fortunate. And every time that happens, somebody's paradigm of life shifts. Every time somebody new comes to Urban Mission, there's just, in those few moments that you spend with people who have a little less than you, there's a paradigm that shifts in in your mind, right? There's a certain gratitude that comes up, and a certain pain that you begin to feel as you look people in the eyes who maybe have less than you do. But that takes intentionality. Uh, that, that takes like a, a determination to give up maybe your Saturday to go down and do that. You're gonna sacrifice something so that you might gain an understanding of somebody else's problems. And only then will you be able to make it your priority. So the first thing compassion does is it seeks to understand. The second thing compassion does is it seeks to help. It seeks to help. Like what does it actually look like to, to help somebody in that situation? What are the needs that are, that are there? And, and far too often, we try to help without understanding. See, we need both of these. When you try to help without seeking understanding first, you're probably going to help in the wrong way. Or you're going to provide something for somebody that isn't really their need. Or you might actually hurt them more than you're helping them by not first seeking understanding of the situation that they're in. So you have to seek understanding. Also, some people seek understanding, but they're not interested in helping, Right? Like, I'm, I'm good with the emotions of the moment. I'm good with, like, feeling for people. But I don't really want to sacrifice to help meet their needs. What I love about Jesus, and if you're new to our church, what you'll learn is that we talk a lot about Jesus. What I love about him is Jesus was both. Jesus both sought to understand and made a way to help, right? 
Like, I love that the story of our God is not some kind of distant deity that sits uh, off in his throne somewhere and says, hey, you guys are screwing this up and, and just shooting light, lightning bolts at us, right? Like, he's a God that, that comes to earth in the flesh. He's a God that says, I want to, to make your problems my priority. I want to step down into the world and take on flesh, become a human, right? And so then what we understand about Jesus is he felt what we felt. He felt real pain. Jesus walked through the streets and saw disease, and he saw the effects of sin on people's lives, and he spent time with the tax collectors and the prostitutes, the thieves of the day. So he spent energy gaining understanding, and then Jesus always had a plan to help, didn't he? Like he always had a way in a, in a journey that he was going on that Jesus knew that his life would end on a cross. He would end up getting the death of a criminal and taking the worst of the worst so that we could experience life. So Jesus does both of those things. If we're to be people of compassion, we are to do both of those things. And I wonder for you, when you think of God, do you think of compassion? And I wonder for, for, for you, if, if you think of God, if you think of compassion, like a lot of people get caught up in the Old Testament stories, right? And you read, okay, man, this was a, this was a terrible moment of history. And you read about people being killed and, and lit on fire and you're like fire from heaven and you're thinking, man, this seems like a really angry God, right? And it almost to some people feels like God changes in the New Testament, like he's a different God. But here's what we read in Psalm 145 verse 8. It says, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. Have you ever thought that God is slow to anger? <laughs> I don't know. Like, for me, I tend to just see when he has anger, right? I tend to think, man, God is just pouring it on me. It seems like my life is difficult right now. I'm going through hard things. But, but, but I think sometimes we should go to God. I mean, God, can you make it any, any worse? And God's like, yeah, I could, right? Like God can always make it worse, but we don't understand that God is always withholding, right? He's always resisting and he's always holding back to some degree because of his grace on us and on the world. Like what we understand as Christians is that we deserve judgment. We deserve separation from God because of our sin. Like in our hearts, there's darkness in our hearts. And when we accept that, we realize, man, anything good in my life is a gift, but sometimes we get caught up in the stories of the Old Testament or even in the, in the dark seasons of our lives and we're like, man, God is just pouring judgment and wrath down on me. But what we see in this passage is that God is slow to anger, steadfast in love, gracious, merciful. These are all words that define God at his core. These aren't simply things that God does sometimes. He's not sometimes gracious, sometimes merciful. He himself is, is an identity, is one who is gracious and merc- merciful. And so what does it look like for you then to go, okay, if, if we as, if we're believers in Jesus are to be like him, what does it mean to have a heart? What does it mean to have compassion? And it's interesting, people um, in the church use this language all the time, like, hey, I have, I have a real heart for this, right? I don't know if you've said that before. I have, I have a real heart for refugees or a heart for single moms or a heart for soldiers with PTSD or a heart for orphans or a heart for widows. You know, you might have a heart for somebody, but what does that really mean when you say you have a heart for something? What's that mean? I think for some people it means I see that something's broken in the world and I feel bad about it. I think that's, that's good, right? Like I see something really wrong and I know it's wrong and I have a heart for that thing. But, but for some people, when you say you have a heart for something, 
It means I see a problem and I'm going to do something about it. In fact, I have a plan. And I'm going to actually give up my time, energy, even my money to make this better for somebody. I'm going to make their problems my priority. But one of the reasons I think a lot of us don't do this is because we don't really see that there's any way to change it, right? Or maybe we lack value in in just changing it for one person. We see that the problem is so huge. And I'm just telling you, take a little look at the needs that we have globally, and you'll start to get really overwhelmed. And what that feeling of overwhelm starts to do for a lot of people is keeps us from doing anything, right? I think a lot of us have fallen into that trap. We're like, man, what difference can I really make? And so we don't move. We begin to be cynics, right? We begin to be cynical about the, 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 the possibility of things getting better. But here's what compassion comes from. Compassion comes from a sacred hopefulness. And if there's one defining mark that I would use to define Christians, it would be hopefulness. That we are to be people, because if we believe that we really know the end of the story, if we really believe what Jesus says, that the kingdom of God is near, then what we see in the future is a total restoration. We see a world that is made right. We see that things will be so much better one day. And to believe that is to have hope. It's to have hope. And then what we do as people who believe that is we bring little pieces of that into the world everywhere we go. We try to be compassionate in a way that shows people what is to come. And yet so many Christians are just as cynical as anybody else, right? We're like, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I don't really believe it can get any better. I'm just telling you that is to reject the core message of the gospel. The gospel is always hopeful. The truth of Jesus is always hopeful. And cynicism, I will tell you, is the enemy of, of hopefulness. And, and, and because of that, we stop having comp- compassion. When you don't have hope, you don't have compassion because you, you're like, man, what's the use? And let me just raise my hand and say, I am the worst cynic in the room. Hi, I'm Brian. I am the biggest cynic in the room. I just, I tend to walk into every situation. I pick it apart. I look for the problems. And I always tend to want to bring people down to earth, you know? And I know a lot of you guys do this too. Who's been in Alaska more than three years? Who here has been in Alaska? Most of you in the room. So so when's the last time you met somebody who's brand new to Alaska and they're really excited about it, right? Like somebody here in the room is probably in that place. You're like, you're all jacked up on like reality TV shows from Discovery Channel and you're thinking about moose hunting this year and the PFD, free money from the sky. Like you're excited. And then some of you cynics in the room, what's the first thing you say to somebody like that? Wait till January. Wait till January. You're gonna hate this, like I, right? Like there's something about us that wants to kind of bring people down, right? I want to give you a sense of reality and steal your hopefulness. I don't know what that is, but for us to be the people of God in a world that lacks hope and lacks compassion means that we have to reject cynicism. At some point, we have to kind of deal with that part of our hearts and go, okay, um, I, I need to allow myself to see the good in situations. I need to allow myself to see the good in in, in the church. I need to allow myself to see the good in people so that I can start to make an effort to make things better. And it begins by by simply, like I said, feeling what other people feel. Uh, This is a word called empathy. Empathy. And Christians are, we're called to be empathetic. We're called to feel what people feel. In fact, Romans 12, 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Can I ask you a hard question? When's the last time you wept with somebody who was weeping? 
Like I tend to read that and be like, that's a metaphor, right? That's a great way to get out of being a real Christian. Just by the way, it's a great excuse. Everything's a metaphor. It's all just, it's not real life. I don't actually have to do this. What if, what if when Paul was speaking to the church in Rome, he is actually saying, you should actually be excited when people get excited, you know? Like you should actually be able to celebrate with people who are celebrating. And when they're weeping, you should actually have tears in your eyes. Like real tears in your eyes for the pain that other people are experiencing. You see, real empathy is when you begin to feel what other people feel. That's a, that's a great start. When you begin to feel what other people feel. But again, empathy's not enough. We've got to do something about it. It's got to be more for the church. Listen, for us to be a church of compassion has to be more than us feeling what other people feel. Like, I mean, if, if you're bleeding, you just cut yourself, you walked into a room, people are like, man... I feel for you, bro. That does nothing for you. You're like, get me a tourniquet, right? I'm bleeding on the floor. Like, I'm glad that you feel my pain. Can you help me, right? And so that really is what compassion is. Compassion is always an action. Compassion is always a verb. Like, you can't be compassionate and sit on the sidelines. You can't, you can't sit back and watch people, people experience pain and be a compassionate person. You can be an empathetic person. You kind of feel for them, but you cannot be compassionate. So I was thinking about this. I was thinking, man, God has so so much compassion on us, and we don't deserve it. And to begin the conversation today, before we get to Luke 4, we have to first understand that we don't deserve the compassion that's poured out on us. And I love this passage in Psalm 78, verse 36. He says, but they flattered him with their mouths and lied to him with their tongues. Ever do that? Christians in the room? You ever flatter God with your mouth and lie to him with your tongues? You ever sing during worship and say, I don't actually believe what I'm saying. Is that just me? I do that all the time. Just me. Verse 37, their heart was not steadfast towards him. They were not faithful to his covenant. I've done that. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. So once again, if you think that God's pouring his wrath on you, let me just encourage you, there's always more. There's always more. He remembered that there were, they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. I love that. Like God is like, hey, I know that I'm God and these are people made of dust. Like we are just dust. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. This is the story of Israel, story of God's people. Constantly running to God, saying, God, help us. God helps them. Constantly running away from God, living apart from God. Verse 41, they tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power. Man, there's a word for the church today. Have we forgotten how powerful God is? They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe. Have we forgotten how God has redeemed us and helped us? Verse 43, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zone. So, this passage introduces a lot of different concepts, one of which being the word atonement. And atonement is a really churchy word, um, but, but it simply really means the cost of reconciliation. That's what atonement is. Like, the, the cost of repairing what is broken between us and God is this idea of atonement. And atonement was God's way of introducing us to the cost of compassion. That's what atonement was. Now, if you don't know what atonement is, there was something that Israel would do that God established for them that every year there was something called the Day of Atonement. 
Um, another way of putting it, another term is, the, is called Yom, Yom Kippur is the, is the term for it. But it was the day of atonement where, where the high priest would, would bring a goat into the, into the temple and he would sacrifice this goat, which this is where it gets weird for us because we don't do a whole lot of animal sacrificing here at ACF Church. Sacrifices the goat. Now there's blood everywhere. This is terrible, gory situation. And then he takes the blood from the goat and sprinkles it on the Ark of the Covenant. Now, for them, blood represented life. And this was a symbol of, of the forgiveness of God as they sprinkle the, the blood on the Ark. And then th- they would take a, he would take a second goat and he would lay his hands on the goat and he would, he would confess the sins of the people on this goat, right? You're like, it's just getting weirder. Um, confess the sins of the people on the goat and then release the goat into the wilderness. Once again, to, uh, to, to, to symbolize the separation of our sin from us, that there's this, this release and this atonement, this separation. And now there's this re- reconciliation that we, we can have with God. And this whole idea of doing this, I get that we don't get it. Um, in a lot of ways, but this was a symbol of what would come in Christ, that there would be a cost for our atonement, that blood would be shed, and that blood would ultimately cover our sins and create a way for us to be restored in relationship with our God. So this was something that was done constantly in their day. Now, open up to Luke chapter 4. We're going to get into this text. If you don't have a Bible, you can open up to the ACF Church app and I'd love it if you follow along with us in one way or another or on the, the insert. But what's going on here at this point is that Jesus has this really successful ministry. He's going from town to town, healing people, casting out demons. And he's, he's kind of making a name for himself. People have, have heard of him far and wide. What this, what this rabbi is doing is just crazy. People are amazed at the power that he speaks with and, and his, his, his power to heal. And so he's going from town to town. And he's, he's modeling this beautiful rhythm uh, that we're to model of, of, of doing ministry, of caring for people, and then separating from that and making space to be alone with his Father, right? Because Jesus needed space. Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is just take a nap, get some rest, right? Like I so said, Jesus needed it, you and I need it. So he, he's in this beautiful rhythm of resting and working and resting and working and doing ministry. And, and, and so his name has spread far and wide, and now Jesus is going to go to his hometown of Nazareth. And they're going to welcome Jesus home. And I was just thinking about what this, what this welcome might have been like, right? I mean, I don't know when the last time you've been to your hometown was, but, but I don't know what kind of welcome you got. You think about Jesus, he's kind of a big name now, and, and I was thinking like American Idol or uh, The Voice, how oftentimes they would, the, the singers from the show would go back to their hometown, and they'd do like a show, and as they come into the city, there's like banners like, you know, welcome home, you know, home of Billy, we love you, Billy. Like nobody knew him <laughs> in the past, but now he's a big deal. And so they're celebrating him coming home. Well, now Jesus is a big deal. He's going home to Nazareth, and he's going to preach. He's going to preach. And what's interesting is that as Jesus preaches, this interesting thing happens. Like, it's, it's like no other sermon you've ever heard preached, where when Jesus preaches, it divides the crowd right up the middle. There's a response that's demanded when Jesus brings a message that people, when Jesus preaches, they're either deeply offended, sometimes wanting to kill him, or they believe, and they give their whole lives to following him. It's crazy. Like, I was thinking about that this week. I'm like, man, what if my sermons were that way? What if, like, every single week, half of you want to kill me, and the rest of you want to give me a big hug, right? I mean, what if that was, I'm thinking if the gospel's actually presented, and I'm still working as a teacher, 
But I feel like if the gospel's really presented, if you really hear the words of Jesus, then you either want to run out of this room screaming or you want to go to your knees in repentance. That's what it demands. There really is no middle ground. There's nobody that hears the message of Jesus and they're like, meh, I'll come back next week, see if they play my favorite song. You know, like, nobody does that. They either love him or they hate him. This is Luke chapter 4, verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. So I've always skimmed over that verse to get to the better part. It seems like, you know, the whole part about, you know, the good news for the poor and the oppressed and all of that. But there's a kind of a big point there. Jesus goes home. What's the first thing he does? Goes to church. Have you ever thought about Jesus going to church? Like, why did Jesus go to church? And I was thinking, man, Jesus knows how jacked up the church is. He knows about how broken and twisted the religious establishment is. He knows people's hearts, how many hypocrites are in the church, right? And I think, you know, what did he have to learn, right? Was he going, like, to to hear a message? He's Jesus. I mean, sure, he grew in wisdom and stature like any other human being, and at the same time, pretty smart guy at this point, you know, kind of understood the message pretty well. So he wasn't going to, to learn something. But all it says is that it was his custom. And Jesus had some customs. And it's interesting, we live in a world where customs and traditions are sort of thrown away, right? Uh, every generation it seems to, that, that seems to come values traditions less and less, unless there's turkey and stuffing involved, right? Then we love traditions. But other than that, we're like, man, don't go to church just for tradition, you know? Don't go to church just because it's like your custom. That's, that's, what, what, that's a waste of time. But it seems like for Jesus, that was enough. And I just want to encourage you here today, if you're like a go-to-church-every-once-a-month person, every, you know, now-and-then or whatever person, let me just encourage you to lean in. Because there is something that happens when you make yourself uh, part of a community versus just somebody who goes to church. You know there's a difference, right? You know there's people that go to church and people who actually are participating in the church? But there's this tendency to try to, try to keep the church at a distance, right? To try to keep people at a little bit of a distance, it's sort of like if you have a fireplace in your house and you've been sitting in front of that fire. Like we sit just close enough to get warm, but not so close that we can be marked by it, be burned by it. And that's how people treat the church a lot. But let me tell you, if you want to become like Jesus, you have to get closer. You have to get closer to people. You have to get to the point where they see you for who you are, which is why we don't do it. Where they see kind of your junk and they see the, the negative parts of you. And, and, and that is really when the church thrives, is when we allow each other to grow when we're actually in each other's lives, when I've got people in my life who are like, Brian, I think, I think there's something that God wants to do in your heart right now. I want to call something better out of you. But if I just keep my distance, show up late, leave early, then that's the best way to not actually have to become a disciple of Jesus. So let me encourage you in that Jesus had a custom of actually participating in the church. It was his custom Now, a typical service for them would have involved an invocation of God's blessing, a reciting of a traditional Hebrew confession of faith, and then a reading of Scripture in a sermon. And Jesus takes this Scripture in the sermon, and he preaches like the world's shortest sermon. Here we go. It says, And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news. So Jesus wants them to know that he's not speaking simply as a man. He's not speaking just as little Jesus that they knew running around the streets when he was young. 
but he's actually speaking as one who is anointed by the Spirit. And you can write this down today, that Jesus' compassion was fueled by the Spirit. You see, the world around us can have compassionate moments. And you don't have to be a Christian to have a compassionate moment. I mean, you can see a need and meet it. And in fact, some people who aren't Christians are more generous than Christians in terms of meeting needs around them. But yet, if you want to be a person who is compassionate, like if you want this to be part of your character, part of who you are, then what I believe you need is the the empowerment and anointing of the Spirit. I believe as a Christian that we are inhabited by God himself. He actually lives within us. And that the Spirit of God actually empowers us to be, in, to be compassionate in ways that kind of should blow our minds. It kind of should really cause the world to, to stand up and notice. For Jesus, it was the same. He was fueled by the Spirit in all that he said and all that he did. And there was good news. He says, the, the Spirit has anointed me to preach good news. Good news to the poor. Let's keep going. He sent me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So I love this. This passage, this is Isaiah 61. Jesus is quoting, which is a really familiar passage for the Jews that were in the audience. And, and they would have known this passage and been like, oh, that's, that's good news. Yeah, that's great. Poor, oppressed, blind, enslaved, like, like, yeah, Jesus, that's great that there's good news for them. It's good news for them. But the message that Jesus is trying to get at, the whole point of this thing is that the good news that he's speaking about isn't just for them, it's for you. That you are the enslaved and the oppressed. That you are those who are blind and unable to see the truth. And, and I can imagine in the room people were trying to figure out what is he actually trying to communicate to us But what you see in the life of Jesus is that he's always trying to get at a deeper meaning to all this stuff. Like he's meeting physical needs, he's healing people physically so that he can actually heal them spiritually. And what's interesting is that as you watch Jesus do his ministry, he's a lot more successful around the physically poor and the physically blind and the physically needy than he is around those who are just spiritually poor, blind, and needy. And if you read the Beatitudes, Jesus says like, blessed are the poor. Why does he say that? He encounters this rich man, and he says, hey, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into the kingdom of God. You see, here's the thing. The compassion of Jesus is about both physical and spiritual needs. It's about both physical and spiritual needs. And here's what I've realized, is that those of us who have been blessed to not have as many physical needs tend to be less aware of our spiritual needs. Do you know that? And it's always been that way. That is simply humanity. Like if you woke up today and you had a meal, you had some running water, you got in a car that actually started, got you to church, you've got clothes that you put on every single day, clean ones even. I mean, for you and I, that's my life, I think it can be pretty easy to feel self-sufficient. I think it'd be pretty easy to feel like, man, I don't know, like I'm pretty good without God. And so what's very clear in the teaching of Jesus is that you and I here in ACF Church today, most of us are in a very difficult spiritual place 
Because without an awareness of those things, without those physical needs, we tend to lack awareness of our spiritual needs. You see, all the things Jesus is getting at here, he's, he's saying, you've always thought, listen, you've always thought that I was speaking, this was speaking about just the, the physically poor and the physically blind and the physically enslaved. But I want to tell you that these are all metaphors for sin. Because sin robs us of the joy of life. Sin enslaves us to human addiction. Sin blinds us to what's best for our families and to the things that we do that, that, that are hurting others. Sin burdens us with anxiety, with depression. Jesus is like, you guys have a deeper problem. I mean, the only thing deeper than physical blindness is spiritual blindness. And we've all got this to one degree or another. He continues on. So people are like trying to figure out, what, what are you saying, Jesus? They're putting two and two together. Like he's got a deeper point here. It says in verse 20, and he rolled up the scroll. <laughs> That's like a 30-second sermon, right? Like I, I have a hard time doing 40 minutes here, folks. So he says, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus drops the mic, right? He's like, all of this, freedom, healing, vision, it's fulfilled in me. And what you need to know about the tone of what Jesus is saying there is not, it's not like you guys should be impressed with little Jesus. It's not, Jesus has nothing to prove to them at all. He has nothing to prove to them. Jesus states this this one, this one sentence is simply to help them see, I want to give you freedom from things that you don't even know that you're enslaved to yet. I want to heal you from wounds that you don't even know that you're wounded by. I want to give you vision in areas that you don't even know that you've been blinded. Like Jesus is like, I have so much more to offer you. Verse 22, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. <laughs> They're like, that's cool. I like this. I like this Jesus. He's going to help us out going to make, make, make us, us see things better and give us, give us sight and, and free us up. I like that. But then the tone shifts in the room, and they said, is not this Joseph's son? Like, have you ever heard somebody say something to you and maybe not realized the implications of it or even where it was coming from? So you hear the crowd, and they're like, yeah, freedom. Yes, yes, we're not enslaved anymore. And then they're like, wait a minute. This is Jesus, like little Jesus, right? Is this not Joseph's son? And they move, the tone moves from confusion to all-out anger to the point that they try to throw him off a cliff. Some here are like, that sounds like Thanksgiving dinner at my house, right? It's like we eat some turkey, somebody says something about Donald Trump, and then it goes downhill, right? Everybody's screaming at each other. I mean, th this is a crazy shift in the room. They're they go from praising him and loving him to all out wanting to kill him. Why? Here's the thing. I think they wanted the compassion of Jesus without the kingship of Jesus. I think they wanted the compassion of Jesus without the kingship of Jesus. Ah, man, there's something for us here. Because uh, I think the good news that many of us have been sold is about Jesus taking away our sins, and, and that's great. About Jesus dying for us, dying the death that we deserve, that's really good, it's true. But what if maybe we've heard a gospel without a king? Because what I want you to know is that the gospel without a king is no gospel at all. It's really not good news. Really, in the end, it's, 
you know, it, it, it's, it's like, ah, uh, God's coming to help me, to make my life better, and the center of the universe in the end of that gospel is me. Like, God exists for me. But the real gospel is this, we exist for God. We live for God. In the end, the gospel is about a king and a kingdom that we're invited into. Have you today made the mistake of maybe wanting the compassion of Jesus without the kingship of Jesus? Like, yeah, God, save me from my sins, but I don't want to give you my life. And have you made the mistake of thinking that that is salvation? Because salvation isn't simply saying, God, take away my sins. It's saying, I surrender to you. Without surrender, it's not salvation at all. And I just want to challenge us today. And maybe this splits the room right up the middle. Maybe you don't want to hear this. Maybe some of you are willing to hear this for the first time. Jesus demands everything. Everything from us. And yet he gives us the life that we could never live. He's the kind of king that gives us freedom. And and let me assure you that you all worship something. You all have something on the throne of your heart. And yet if that something is not Jesus, that something is enslaving your life. It's stealing from you. It's stealing from your family. It's stealing from your future. And Jesus is like, when you make me king, I will give you life. I will set the captives free. So you will have a king. Will you choose a king that actually gives you freedom? And what's interesting, this story continues on, and the crowd gets more stirred up, and Jesus says, he talks about these two prophets, Elijah and Elijah, both prophets who have these ministries to the outcast, ministries to the non-elite and the non-religious And those who are different from them in every way, from social to economics to their race. He says, hey, these two guys had ministries to these people. And this crowd was furious because these Jews, they wanted an elite gospel. They wanted a gospel for them. They wanted it for their little religious community, right? And Jesus is like, no, I come with a gospel that's for the world. From every creed and color in the world, I come to give hope for all of humanity. And it enraged them to the point that they wanted to kill Jesus. So I want to ask you today, do you understand what's been offered to you in the atonement of Christ? Do you understand the cost of compassion? That Jesus came and he, was, he, he, he came to die to give up his entire life for us. And I know that some of you here, maybe, maybe somebody here is like, man, I, I don't deserve this. I can't receive this. But what I want, I mean, if I could sit down across the table from you, I would just tell you blood was spilled for this. And the most God-honoring thing you can ever do is receive compassion from Jesus. Just receive it as a free gift. What's so cool is that when Jesus came, he, he basically changed things for his people. That the rituals of sacrificing animals were no more. We don't, we don't have to do that anymore. Praise God. But he did leave us with two rituals. Jesus left us with two things. The first thing is something called the Lord's Supper or communion. And we do that every single week as a church. And if you're a Christian, I'd I'd invite you to come forward during the next few moments as we sing. And on each side of the stage, there's a a cracker and some juice. And it just represents the body and the, the blood of Christ spilled and broken for you. So spend a second in your seat. 
consider the cost of your freedom and then come forward and receive that. But the only other ritual, the only other thing that we continue to do as a church is something called baptism. And baptism, as Christians, it doesn't save you. This isn't special water. It's not holy water. It's just tap water. It doesn't rinse away your sins. Jesus does that. But what baptism is, is it's a way of you saying, I'm not ashamed of the one who saved me. It's a way of you coming forward and allowing us to partake in the joy that Jesus takes in your new life. And as you go into the water, it's a symbol of your death to that old self. It's like saying, hey, I know that I still struggle sometimes. I know that old me is still kind of coming back now and then, but that's no longer who I am. I'm in Christ. And as you come out of the water, it's you embracing your new life in Jesus. That's all baptism is. But it's a command. It's the first thing we're called to do. It's the first act of obedience for us as Christians. It's funny, I think a lot of Christians are trying to do a lot of things and, 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 and to obey God and to live these Christian lives, and, and yet many times we, we mistake those things for the, the most basic things that Jesus says, just first be baptized. And what we know about Jesus is when he started his ministry, you know what he did? He got baptized. Have you ever thought of why? Jesus didn't have sin. He didn't have a new life to receive. Jesus got baptized to model life for us, to show us what was to be done and how to live. And so what I want to do for you today is give you an opportunity. Maybe you didn't come to church intending to do this, but has God been speaking to your heart for a little while? Has God been working on your soul for a little bit? Maybe shown you that you haven't truly embraced a king. You've simply wanted the hands of Jesus without giving your heart to Jesus. And if that's you today, I want to encourage you, do more than simply pray in your seat, but to take a step of faith. And let God honor that by getting baptized today. And so, um, I, don't know if we have, I don't think we have any schedule. We just offer this sometimes. There might be one or two of you or, or many of you who'd want to take this step. There's some people in the lobby, and they've got t-shirts for you. They've got shorts for you. There's hair dryers in the bathrooms for you ladies who are like, but my hair is all going to get wet. We got little scrunchies. We got everything for you. We got all the bases covered. So zero excuses. If God is saying something to you today, take a step of faith. They would love to get you set up and we'll baptize you here in the next few moments. Or maybe for you, you were baptized as an infant and you didn't make that decision on your own and you're like, you know what? I, I want to make my decision for myself as an adult say that this is my Jesus and I want to give my whole life to him. So let me encourage you to take that step to receive compassion, the compassion of Jesus and to walk in the footsteps of Jesus in an act of obedience to get baptized today. So could we stand up together? Let me pray for us as we step into worship. God, I just want to confess that um, I'm pretty obsessed with my own life and that sometimes my problems seem like more than enough to keep me busy. And God, that it leads to uh, a life of selfishness and my thoughts and my efforts, my dreams tend to swirl around what I can do for me. And yet I've seen over the years, God, that that doesn't actually end up making my life any better. It's the moments where I'm poured out, spilled out, 
into someone else's life that actually end up giving me life. So God, we as your church, we want to recognize that when, when our community thinks of the church, they don't always think of compassion. They might think of a lot of different things, but compassion may not be one of those things. Yet God, we know that we will not change that until we first receive compassion from you. We cannot give what we haven't first received. And so, God, would you pour out compassion on our hearts and on our lives? God, could we receive the forgiveness that you so freely offer us, the grace that you want to lavish upon us? God, could we resist the urge to try to earn it or pay for it, God, that we might simply receive it with thanks? God, we love you. We know we were made for more. We pray that you would show us this week maybe just one person whose problems we could make our priority. God, that we could show people the cost of atonement by the way that we give of ourselves sacrificially just to help someone. And God, could that be a vision of your kingdom on earth just as it is in heaven? We look forward to a day, God, where you will restore. Cause us to be hopeful cause us to reject cynicism, cause us to love deeply, God, the way that you love us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, love you guys.